Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. We're in Miami, Florida, hybrid, first seminar 2020. That's the first time that's happened. Yeah, yeah. thanks guys. Thank you. Uh, so we're gonna do a Q&A here. Uh, cultivate, we have curated questions. Austin picked them out, so it's his fault if your question didn't get answered. If it didn't get answered and you still have this burning query, please post up on our forum uh, or Facebook page. Uh, it's a, a great community of about over 10,000 folks. We're all trying to uh, get better and learn a lot and help each other. So also, if none of those work, if you don't get accepted to our Facebook group and we delete your question off our forum, please slide into Leah Lutz's direct messages. She cannot let the DMs go. And she will bug pester one of us for the answer. Yes, true. Okay, question number one. Smoking is associated with obesity and central adiposity, but smokers often cite fear of weight gain as a barrier to smoking cessation. What do? Yeah, well, so I, I, I understand where this comes from, because the idea, and, and again, there's uh, nuggets of truth in here, that nicotine is like an appetite suppressant. People have this habitual uh, process of smoking them after meals, and they feel like that helps them curb their hunger, uh, et cetera. And then every time they've tried to quit, uh, it is common for individuals who uh, quit smoking that they uh, start eating more in the short term. That being said, uh, among smokers, people who smoke, who are heavy smokers, tend to have higher rates of obesity. Um, you also pulled the study. Um, yeah, I pulled a, I did some background uh, research while I was back there sifting through these. And this paper by Dare in 2015, they looked at almost 500,000 people in the UK who were smokers. So pretty substantial population size that they looked at there. And I'll just quote, uh, this line from it said, among smokers, the risk of obesity increased with the amount smoked and former heavy smokers were more likely to be obese than former light smokers, about a 60% uh, higher kind of odds of that. And they said risk of obesity fell with the amount of time from quitting. After 30 years, former smokers still had higher risk of obesity than current smokers, but the same risk as people who had never smoked. So that increase in, uh, in kind of uh, tendencies towards gain, gaining weight after quitting smoking, that seems to be a uh, transient thing after quitting, but the, long, the further out you get from successfully quitting smoking, the more your obesity risk tends to normalize uh, and, and kind of merges with the same risk of somebody who had never smoked uh, at any point in their life. So I would not use this as a reason to not smoke or to not quit smoking, although it is cited as a barrier commonly, um, you know, that risk uh, normalizes after, uh, you know, long term. Yeah, it's like a short-term risk. In addition, uh, with some of the medical uh, sort of management we have with, that associates uh, smoking cessation and some of the other psychological techniques like C, uh, CBT and stuff, that those tend to be having better outcomes with respect to even that short-term risk of increase in weight. They, they tend to not see that as much. Cool. Practical slash example suggestions for initiating the conversation with family members that appear to be suffering from sarcopenia. It's actually a great question because uh, it affects a lot of people, but also can this, this, the answer to this can extend more broadly to other medical conditions that you think a family member might have but not be addressing. Uh, just as the first part of this, I don't actually think it's terribly important for you to diagnose them or tell them that you're necessarily afraid that they have a particular condition that's got a diagnosed name. Um, that doesn't mean you never have to do that or that can't be part of your talking strategy, but I think the initial like communication should be what your concerns are with, about their health, uh, show some understanding of their current situation, and then try to direct them towards resources. So for example, 
uh, I probably wouldn't, even though I am medically trained, I don't know that I would bring up that I'm afraid that somebody in my family has sarcopenia directly to them, but rather I would ask them if they'd be open to going to the gym with me or going to the gym to see a coach or one of my friends who trains folks because at that point they're, they're already engaging in the behavioral change that I want to get them towards and I don't necessarily want to scare them with medical terminology if I'm not their doctor. Uh, so I would direct them not only to the gym in this case but then also to see their doctor Although then again, you'd have to assume that their doctor's up on this stuff, which is, well, you know, yeah. kind of hamstrung here. Yeah, I, I also probably wouldn't bring it up in terms of like an ominous medical diagnosis, but rather um, my strategies for doing this um, really revolve around making it meaningful to the person. So the first step in behavior change, like what Jordan laid out at the beginning of the weekend, is identifying where is this person in the, in kind of the, the, uh, the trans-theoretical model with respect to where are they in terms of readiness for behavior change? Do they even know that there may be an issue here? So I do this all the time with my hospitalized inpatients, and I think I've talked about this maybe uh, before, where I might have an el elderly person or even a non-elderly person admitted for a particular medical condition, and I'll test them out. I'll do the sit-to-stance. I do that pretty routinely on my uh, patients in the hospital, and routinely they fail it. They're either unable to do it or unable to do it without their arms or something like that. And so that might be something that they just had accepted as a part of aging, for example. They just thought, oh, this is just what happens when you get old, right? And I don't actually mention the word sarcopenia to them. I ask them, once I've identified that they, that they were uh, unable to complete that task, I might say, tell me about the things that you like to do in a given day knowing that the answer is usually, I don't usually do very much. You know, I might walk around the house a little bit and that's usually about it. That's what I get from a lot of these patients. What did you used to like to do? What kind of things were your hobbies? What did you used to enjoy? Things like that. What kind of things were you previously able to do that you don't think you could do anymore? Then they'll rattle off a whole bunch of things. Oh, I used to do this and this and this and this and this. Do you think that, you know, there are any of those that you'd really like to be able to do again? Oh yeah, I'd love to be able to do this, but you know, I'm just old, I can't do it anymore. And then that's my way in to say, what if there's a way that we could work to get you back towards being able to do some of these things? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to do this thing independently without needing the help of your family member, your son, your daughter, your spouse, your caregiver, whoever, to help you do this relatively simple task, reaching to grab something out of a cabinet, getting up to go out and get the mail or something like that that they feel like they can't do anymore. So those are activities that hold meaning to the individual and they give me like a hook that I can grab and make this goal something that they can actually foresee as being impactful to them rather than saying, oh, I'm concerned that you have sarcopenia and that's associated with an increased risk of morbidity and mortality, right? They're like, okay. Yeah, buzz off, nerd. You know? <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. Rather, making it, tying it to a meaningful activity. We do the same thing in the rehab context, right? We're trying to get people to rehabilitate back towards valued activities that they want to be able to do, whether that's squatting and deadlifting or whether that's, you know, bending over and picking up their kids or something like that. So sarcopenia is a training process and involves behavior change, um, same, as, same as the pain and rehab thing. But again, you have to make it meaningful to the person in order to get buy-in. Um, but of course, even before that, they have to recognize that it's a problem. And a lot of these folks don't even recognize it as a problem at all. So that's when, if they can't even get up out of a chair, I'm like, that kind of concerns me that you're unable to get up out of a chair, you know, just because you're 60 or 70 or 80 or 40 or 50 or whatever. Um, you know, you should be able to get up out of a chair and do these things. And, I'm, and I think that there are ways that we can get you here. Are you interested in learning more about how we can accomplish this and then kind of go from there. So that's how I do it. Yeah, you do that.
I do that all the time. Also, like, and again, just to reiterate the part, what I said at the beginning, I think directing people towards good resources, like if you want to bring this up in some fashion, then you have to know what your next move is going to be. So now you've got them to recognize that there's an issue. So well, now what's your solution? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Well, but you should really work on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should really work on that. Yeah. Get a, nice. little, get a little Clinton. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Not known for that. Not known for your Clinton. <laughs> Baraki. Yeah, okay. Uh, all right. Thoughts on when it makes sense for non-competitive lifters to use straps? Other than grip strength, does it greatly diminish the benefits of the deadlift? Yeah, I mean, I wrote a, ho a whole article about this called Gripping Matters. It's available on a few different locations on the interwebs. Uh, I don't really care outside of competitive powerlifters or people who, other, uh, who are involved in the barbell sports. I do think there's something to be said about developing grip strength just in general. So I think, you know, that's, there's carryover then from the deadlift to other exercises where you have to hold on to things like, you know, pull-ups, chin-ups, stuff like that. Uh, that being said, you could work on those just by pull-ups and chin-ups. So uh, other than just competing in the barbell sports, I don't know that you necessarily need to develop deadlift-specific grip strength. Um, I think that straps in general can be a great training tool to help folks who have grip problems still train their deadlift, but I would also at the same time be training their grip in the deadlift. And so the way I generally program this is working up to your top set, I want you to not use straps for your top set, use just your hands with chalk and uh, try to hold the last rep of your heaviest working set for about 20 seconds and set it down. Then if you need to use straps for the rest of your workout, that's fine. But again, if you're not at least trying to develop your grip strength, I think that you're missing out. And I think that just part of the general training development process, you're missing out a little bit. But if someone was very adamant, like, look, I do not want to use this alternate grip. It scares me and all this other stuff. I think that's a big, deeper issue to have to dive into. And the only way that they're gonna resistance train is, do, is by using straps. Okay. Yeah. Doesn't if it's, a, me if it's a non-competitive general health person, I don't really care. Yeah. At all. I just, I think, I do think there's just something to like having a developed grip strength. I think I would make the point here that if you had somebody in that situation and they became very trained in their deadlift, sure. using straps the whole time. Yeah. I still think they're likely to have improved their grip strength. Oh, along I agree. The way. I agree. Just and I'm good enough. I'm, that's good enough for me. Fine. I think for a non-competitive person. Yeah. I just think for the Instagram clout, which you know is increasingly becoming more and more important, can't use straps. Yeah. If you say so. Yep. <laughs> uh, do you think that healthcare providers should be more liberal in their use of obesity drugs? What resources would you recommend to a physician who is interested in learning more? Uh, yes, I don't have the specific like prescription rates or like you know how often these should be used but then aren't or how often they're available to patients who would get covered you know for them but then they're not made it like they're not prescribed. I don't know that all those those rates, but I do know that they're underutilized. Um, and so as far as resources on learning more about not only the mechanism of action, but the prescription uh, like indications and things to monitor and watch out for, et cetera, the 2016 
Um, American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologist Obesity Guidelines has a very lengthy discussion of all of these agents and when they should and shouldn't be prescribed and potential uh, medication interactions and things of that nature. So that would be the first resource I would go to. And then after that, it would be based on each particular medication, just on up to date yeah. or uh, uh, Lex, Lex, uh, what is it? Lexicomp. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Lexicomp. I agree that they're probably underused, but I, I don't think we want to because that's likely to get us like YouTube commenters saying that. Oh, we're, big pharma. You know, big, there it is. There it is. Did we, I tell you the we story? We just want to throw. We just want to throw everybody on medicines. Do I have to listen to your story? Well, we're here. <laughs> listen, listen. Pfizer emailed me. Pfizer emailed me because they want to run this social media campaign. Okay, and they were going to offer me, this is the funny part, they were going to offer me $300, 300 whole doll hairs to make a post about this Pfizer campaign. Now, to be fair, this was like a getting healthy, like, uh, advertisement. Um, they're running, the, you know, this sort of campaign to get people more active and eating right. And, but here's the thing, though. It's sponsored like by Pfizer. Yeah, I feel like they don't actually care about that. I, it's sponsored by Pfizer, and again, like, we already get accused enough of being big pharma shills, even though most of the medications that we actually like recommend or the classes, there's like a lot of generics. So which means, and we're certainly not getting paid for them. Like I don't make, you I make, don't make. I make precisely zero dollars prescribing any medication. Right, nobody's giving you kickbacks. Nobody. Yeah, literally nobody. <laughs> so there's an opportunity. No, yes. uh, it was just so weird that they emailed. And so when I said, no, thank you, they were like, we have some wiggle room on our reimbursements. And I was like, I, I started thinking, I was like, what amount of money would it take for me <laughs> to make a Pfizer post, like being pro-Pfizer? Because you just have to assume that that's the end of your career. Yeah, so it would have to be at least like, I don't know, what, a thousand times higher than that. It, <laughs> I mean, I just have to live on it. So I was gonna say, look, I need $3 billion. <laughs> and unless you're willing to give me $3 billion. Yes, that's what it takes for you to live, huh? That's right, okay. to sell my soul, yeah. to actually be big pharma. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I wasn't done. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that these medicines are also underutilized, but given those concerns that people are likely to have, I think that we should emphasize that there are specific indications for when they should be used. So remember when Jordan was talking about the nutrition interventions and say you want to initiate the aggressive lifestyle stuff, there's a percentage goal for clinically relevant weight loss, and there's a time frame that you want to achieve that in if you do it, right? So if you go through hit that time frame and you're missing your weight loss targets, then there's a perfectly reasonable situation to initiate that discussion rather than just blaming the patient more and saying, it's your fault, you didn't do this, you need to try harder, you're a bad person. That might be a time to say, hey, maybe the diet, the dietary RPE of this intervention, right? The, the, how difficult this behavior changes for you might be a little too high, too difficult to adhere to. One of the ways these medications can help is by actually making it a little bit easier to adhere to a calorie-restricted diet, right? Through effects on the brain, satiety mechanisms, all kinds of other things. So I've used these medications actually pretty frequently, despite the fact that I was not actually formally trained in them in residency. Uh, it's quite easy to learn, uh, to learn about them for people who have prescribing power um, and to learn about side effects and things like that, particularly uh, through like a family medicine training, internal medicine training, any kind of generalist practice, they're not that difficult to, to manage or to deal with. So um, I've used them with uh, a handful of patients, uh, obviously, as with any intervention, just like in training, there's a spectrum of individual responses. I've had uh, some patients who did awesome with it. They said suddenly like adhering to their calorie restricted diet was a piece of cake. They had no difficulty with it. Um, and others who didn't do great on one, but did better on another. Um, and, and some who had less of an effect altogether. And so again, I don't think these are a 
a, a great tool to use as what we call monotherapy. You just like put somebody on a pill and say, oh, guess you're good now. It still needs aggressive multimodal interventions in terms of the nutrition piece, the physical activity piece, medication piece, et cetera. They all have kind of a role to play here. Because again, weight loss and particularly sustained weight loss is hard. Yeah, the lifestyle recommendations are recommended at literally every level for individuals with obesity, and then there's only a certain swath of those that would yeah. be qualify for medications. Yeah. Sorry, Pfizer, not today. Okay, after years of being exposed to the more intellectual evidence-based side of the fitness industry, I found it harder and harder to communicate with the gen pop about training in a way that doesn't go over their head. Questions like, how do I lose weight? Or what program do you follow? Usually elicit lengthy responses where I rarely feel like the other party has any takeaway that allows them to take action. What communication strategies do you use with less experienced populations to communicate so that you are able to meet them on their level? I mean, honestly, I think you answered your own question within this question. It's effectively, if you're not meeting people at their level, based on their level of education, understanding, et cetera, then it doesn't matter what your fund of knowledge is, you just missed. It doesn't mean that you're a bad person or that you should like quit or whatever. It just, you're gonna have to try a different strategy. So I think it's okay to simplify things. I think it's okay to draw, draw things down if you need to make a graph. I think it's okay to have pre-prepared materials where you've actually sat down and thought about this and constructed out like, you know, a couple different statements. You can actually run these through different software, like free, software that's available on the internet to check for like reading level, like how, how complicated is this stuff. But if you're finding yourself explaining like relatively simple concepts in these very long, you know, complicated manners, my, my first instinct is to say, hey, just try to explain it in one sentence or less. Dumb it down, it's fine. Because they're not asking you like, what are all the mechanisms by which somebody may lose weight? Please provide references. I might ask you that, right? In a question, an open book test, soon to be coming for the Barbell Medicine Training Certification. No, uh, but with respect to just, you know, uh, peer to, uh, you know, uh, or not peer to peer co uh, communication, but also just client to uh, provider uh, communication, if they're just asking you how do you lose weight, the answer would, would be, I, you need to be in a calorie deficit, and if we can find you a way to adhere to a diet where you're eating less calories than you burn per day, we're gonna get there. You don't need to go into this long thing because then they might, that might trigger additional questions that you'll have to answer in a similar way. So the Twitter, I call it the Twitter method. You have 160 characters to effectively explain a complex topic. And if you can't fit it in there, I think you might need to think about this a little harder before you respond. It's easier to make up with volume of language you know, rather than, than substance. And then I also think, again, having the pre-prepared materials offer common questions or FAQ, like frequently asked questions, super useful. That's what, like in the medical clinic, we always laugh, or I always used to laugh rather, about the pamphlets, like the handouts. But a lot of that stuff has been thought about, even researched on, on some levels, uh, in order to better communicate these things because you can't think of a off-the-cuff response that's uh, necessarily gonna uh, be helpful. So you can have the pamphlet, literally go through that with them and say, here's what I think, and this is for you to have. Yeah, this is difficult for sure, and so, you know, my, regular uh, job in the in the medical setting in the hospital setting i train residents and medical students and so i frequently observe their interactions with patients and i get to see how they counsel patients how they talk with patients how they educate and, and kind of the way they speak and overwhelmingly the most common problem that i see when they're talking to patients is using too much complicated medical jargon when explaining things to patients particularly 
really these really complex medical things that they're say admitted to the hospital for. So I always end up debriefing with them and telling them, hey, that was like you know they were clearly not understanding what we were talking about there. This is how I would uh, explain this, and it takes practice to develop like a, an arsenal of metaphors of e explanatory strategies to explain some of these complicated things. But the way I at least initiate these conversations um, is always by asking the patient what they know about a particular topic. So they, somebody might say, how do I lose weight? And I'm like, well, maybe tell me what you already know about this condition. Tell me what you know about you know, being overweight. Tell me what you know about weight loss. And I might get nothing. That tells me where I need to start, like at the very bottom, right? Or they might have some degree of knowledge, but it might be wrong. Well, that gives me a little place to start in terms of you know, steering them in the right direction. Or they might start spouting off a whole bunch of complex scientific jargon. I'm like, oh, you're like a scientist and you already know all this stuff, I'm a right? Bit of a scientist yeah. <laughs> so I've had, you know, I've, I've seen that a lot with patients who come in and they, and I ask them, what do you know about this? And they'll spout out a bunch of medical jargon. I'm like, oh, you're in healthcare, so I can talk to you at a particular level. So I use that initial question of tell me what you know about this as my screening tool to identify where the person is at in terms of their level of education. And then I try to reflect that back at them with my language in terms of the way I uh, explain things. So I just reflect what they're giving me back at them. And again, that takes practice. Uh, uh, takes a lot, of, a lot of work and you have to pay a lot of attention to your language, which is something that hopefully you took away from the pain lecture already in terms of words that we use with people when discussing these topics. So paying attention to the words you use is, is good, but I, I like assessing where people are at and then just reflecting it back at them. Yep, and to get feedback on like how good or bad of a job you did, just asking for a teach back at the end of whatever your communication was. So like, okay, so let's me, review. Let's review, tell me what you know, you know, now what you know about this yeah. can be useful because if, they, if nothing comes back, you're like, dang it, missed again. <laughs> but uh, hopefully you'll build like, again, certain metaphors, certain phrases, uh, explanations that stick with you, you add to your arsenal. Um, this reminds me of Dr. Lawrence, my psych mm -hmm. attending. Like yeah, every time. Spiels. Oh my gosh, I thought he was like like a CD player, like you just skip to the next track. Every time he prescribed a medication, it would be the same thing every single time. And now, in retrospect, he probably had explained each one of those things a couple hundred of t different times and was like, here's how to best explain that so people understand. Or just, you know, he liked it personally. I don't know. All right, next question. Do you believe heart rate plays a role in program design for cardiovascular fitness? If so, when, if not, why? Um, I feel like this is a bit of a kind of a trying to get me to commit to like this straw man kind of thing. Like, so I think that the heart, like obviously, obviously your heart rate is going to be a, th a thing, <laughs> a thing <laughs> that you're going to use, uh, or sorry, that you're going to sort of monitor, or it's going to be a part of the actual exercise program prescription. I just don't like using that as uh, the intensity sort of communication. Meaning that go run at a you know heart rate of 140 to 150 beats per minute or 80% of your max heart rate. Um, one, because not everyone has a heart rate monitor. Two, some of the problems with accuracy of heart rate monitors, particularly with novel sort of training uh, 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 modalities. And then in addition, um, I just I, I prefer the ease of use with RPE. So effectively, they're both measurements of internal load, but RPE, you don't need any specialized equipment, and it's the same scale that you can use across a wide different uh, variety of modalities. So um, 
That being said, I do use heart rate prescription for people who are new to certain exercises. So, so for example, I have a client right now who's like, I want to get better at running. I'm terrible at running. So after we address the catastrophic language, then uh, I was like, okay, so uh, do you have a heart rate monitor? He happened to have one. I was like, great. So I need you to go, you're going to go jog for 25 minutes at an RPE six. Your heart rate's not going to go over 130 beats per minute. If it does, you need to start walking because I wanted him to understand like even if he didn't feel like he was working that hard, his heart rate was telling him something different um, because he was very new. On the other hand, if I had a person, that same person, but they didn't have a heart rate monitor, I'd probably just lower the RPE. I'd say at RPE five, meaning you should be able to talk in complete sentences. You might be able to sing a bar from your favorite song, provided it's not Dr. Dre and you're not just yelling, all right? So you know, actually sing. Twister, uh, Twister. yeah. Long, long bars. <laughs> um, if you don't know who Twista is, uh, link in bio. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's obviously a thing. I just don't use it that often. I just don't use it that often. May again, because there are limitations to it, and then not everyone has a heart rate monitor. I think if we did more cardiovascular, like if we were the, the cardio dudes, like uh, well, I mean, cardiovascular for, medicine. Yeah. <laughs> for about 15 years, I was a cardio dude when I swam. Yeah. And... Obviously, the talk test is not an option when you're swimming, right? Where you can, you know, talk but not sing. Not really, not really an option underwater. Um, we also didn't use heart rate monitors in general. But when I think back to the way at least my college swimming coach programmed a lot of our sets, he just used a color system: pink, red, or blue. <laughs> and those were increasing in No, no, no. Blue was actually like all-out sprint like maximal and then red was like what I would call like an RPE 8 and pink was like an RPE 6 and then like no color assigned was like you know the first warm-up sets or something like that um, and so when I think back I'm like oh he was just using you know internal load you know kind of an RPE type type thing but even more simplified which means that if you are working with a client and using a 1 to 10 numerical system for their RPE rating is too difficult then you know it could literally be like you know a stoplight color code system or something like that, right? And that's you know going to be going to be getting you close. And you've you've talked about the feeling scale before, where it's I like it. this set should feel bad, and that you know that's yeah. something that's going to be pretty hard. This has, been, hard. this has been researched. Yeah. So Verified for, for general population, people who don't care about one RM powerlifting performance, and you're just trying to get a ballpark intensity prescription, probably good enough. Yeah. Use the feeling scale, yeah. or don't. We often hear from a nutritional and fitness standpoint that you want to limit inflammation. I know that certain disease states involve inflammation, but inflammation is also part of the healing process. Can you distinguish, distinguish between good versus bad inflammation and when we would want to control or limit inflammation? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing here is, is the amount of total inflammation. So inflammation, when it is in excess, uh, is, can be or can be problematic. Generally, inflammation caused from training or uh, um, from other sort of what we would consider either potentially beneficial or benign sources do not go to the level where it can cause harm. Um, so one common marker of inflammation is like this metric called C-reactive protein or CRP. Um, another one would be ESR, erythrocyte sedimentation rate. There are studies out there showing that the resistance training drives up CRP and ESR after training, but a little bit. Enough where that's still within the error margins of the test itself, and it's effectively meaningless. We don't know what to do with a slightly elevated 
ESR or CRP that doesn't reach a certain threshold where common diseases hang out. So it's really just a total, the amount of inflammation. Same thing with dietary interventions. So you can go find a study right now that talks about uh, tart cherry juice, how it lowers, it cuts CRP in half. But what that study also says is that the level by which it's cutting in half is a normal level. It just goes from literally one and a half to 0.75 when, and it does, you don't even think about that metric until it gets to 10. Okay, so uh, that's an oversimplified view of inflammation and like how we would wanna either assess it or address it. But the way I think about it is that in disease processes, the amount of inflammation, total inflammation is large and then the amount of inflammation that occurs secondary to resistance training or other potentially beneficial or benign sort of stresses tend to be well below uh, the, the level that causes disease. Yeah, I think that outside of having a diagnosed autoimmune or auto-inflammatory syndrome, uh, medical condition like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, uh, et cetera, that there's really no reason for you to be worried about inflammation. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. When, when should we worry because, about it? Yeah. Shouldn't. Yeah. In general, you shouldn't. Because even, you know, I see enormous amounts of acute inflammation in patients sometimes who come in with sepsis, severe infections, things like that. And even that inflammation, which is off the charts in terms of how high it is, I'm not trying to suppress it because I recognize that it's an immune response to the infection that's going on and I'm treating the infection to try to deal with that. So even in that situation, I'm not trying to suppress inflammation. In these autoimmune, auto-inflammatory syndromes where your body is chronically attacking itself, yeah, that merits treatment by somebody who's qualified to handle those kind of immune suppressing medications and things like that. But for anybody who doesn't have those medical conditions, don't worry about it. You know, it's gonna happen. It's a normal part of uh, human existence. It is uh, an immune-mediated process that's generally physiologic, adaptive. Uh, it helps you uh, uh, recover from training, heal from injuries, re and, and recover from other illnesses. And I just wouldn't worry about it. It's become like a, like a demonized kind of a buzzword that people worry about when they really shouldn't. It's just inflammation. And just because something hurts doesn't mean it's inflamed, which doesn't mean you need to take anti-inflammatory medica medications either. Sure. Just in general, it doesn't help for a lot of things. Sure. Yeah. All right. 20 years ago, oh shit. 20 years ago, there was some controversy, or at least discussion, of pleiotropic effects of statins in atherosclerosis. What is the current thought on these effects? I see Ferens here. Yeah, basically, the question is, you know, people have discussed whether statins reduce cardiovascular risk through a bunch of other mechanisms unrelated to cholesterol, and they definitely do have a bunch of other effects. However, um, I'll, I'll cite, I uh, uh, will say that we have a huge body of evidence at this point, both from genetic data, these fancy studies called Mendelian randomization studies, as well as randomized controlled trials of medications that basically show that any intervention that we can do that lowers the blood lipid level, um, uh, uh, yeah, you can actually predict how much it's gonna reduce risk based on how much it lowers the blood lipid level. So uh, I'll quote this line from uh, Brian Ferentz's 2017 paper where he says um, that uh, uh, trials suggest that the effect of uh, low density lipoprotein or LDL on the risk of cardiovascular events is approximately the same per unit change in LDL cholesterol for any mechanism that lowers LDL-C. Um, so basically any intervention that lowers those numbers a certain amount, you get the same effective risk reduction. So whether that's from a statin or whether it's from something else or whether it's from something else, 
per unit reduction in blood LDL levels, you get the same predictable risk reduction. So the overwhelming effect of those medications on reducing cardiovascular risk is via lowering LDL levels or these uh, lipoproteins that we talked about. So in general, pleiotropic effects, interesting topic, not super relevant to, to worry about. Yep. It's like every one millimole of LDL concentration that you lower it, it's at 18% Gets risk reduction. Gets you a certain amount of risk ASCBD. reduction. Yeah. yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. Ferenc is a, have you met him? No. Yeah. You think he lives? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. In your opinion, when does it... <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, we're not... I, I skipped one. Uh, how to set realistic lifting goals for a first-year lifter, broadly and specifically, weight on the bar in the main lifts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think about, to my personal experience, all right, so let's talk about our first years. First years in lifting. First year in lifting, I remember I was a, a, a freshman at Truman State University. I had just came back from this dislocated hip. That's how I got into resistance training. I was told to squat and I was like, gotta squat. So <laughs> I went to the gym and I didn't know that you could load weights lighter than 45 pounds on a you can't. first squat. Can't be Because I'd never seen it, right? When I was in there doing curls, because that's all I was doing at the time, curls and incline bench, because I wanted to target my upper pecs. <laughs> All I saw were people loading plates, right, on the leg press and on a squat. So I just thought you'd put a plate on a squat. So I remember I had 135, I walked it out, I squatted down probably half depth, and it pinned me. I just, de I almost died. Yeah, luckily I didn't. Then I figured out there are lighter weight increments. Um, my first year I squatted 500. To be clear, it was probably high. But whatever, you know, sometimes it's like that. I, dead, I benched 365 for a double, and I deadlifted 545 in Nike shocks. That was the key. Um, He's what we would call a high responder to training. Sure. Or, you know, I don't know. I just, I was in college, man. That's what you do, right? You just lift weights and get, get jacked. Yeah. I didn't have the same experience. But yeah. Okay. But, okay. <laughs> but I remember thinking in my, in my head, like I wanted to squat 500, like my first year I wanted to squat 500. I wanted to deadlift 500 and I wanted to, to bench 365. And then as soon as the end of the first year, I was like, like, I remember as soon as I squatted 500, I was like, I need six plates. And as soon as like on the way up, 365 is going up, I'm like, I need 405. 545, I thought 600. Like that's immediately how it went. But I didn't have any like lifetime goals. And every time I'd like set a lifetime goal, uh, it was always too low. So I think now in hindsight, here's what I would recommend for a first year lifter. Don't pick lifetime goals, pick like medium, medium to long-term goals that you think are reasonable in the next year or two. So for example, you're in your first year and you want to squat 500. Like that's, you know, not to in your first year, but that's maybe your, that's maybe your first like medium-term goal. Okay. Right? So maybe it's within the first three years of training, which I think is reasonable if you're like a pretty good responder to training. If? Yeah. Well, okay. Look, I know, I, that's what I'm saying though. Like pick, pick a goal that you think is achievable in the next six to 12 months, three, six, 12 months, something like that. And that should be your, and then you gotta have to keep redoing that. So now what happened, the last PR that I hit, I deadlifted 735, right? And on the way up, the only thing in my brain was like, I bet 800 would be fucking cool. <laughs> like I can't even be happy, you know? Just sad on my own, my own end. But yeah, so my recommendation for a new lifter would be to pick uh, something that you can do in the next 12 months. See you. And, uh, and, and go from there. But I don't think it's appropriate to, to try to develop like lifetime goals because you just don't know how you're gonna respond. You know, this dude, you squatted 285 at the end of your what, ninth, ninth month? 
I yeah, I mean, I suppose I lifted weights in high school when I was a swimmer because I was smart enough to do some non-swimming stuff. Sure. And then I didn't similarly didn't know what I was doing and just did what other people did in the weight room pretty yeah. much. When I actually started barbell training properly or proper like that, yeah, I squatted 285 in four months of training, something yeah. like that. Started around 125 or something on the squat, I guess. Yeah, but, um, how, but how many people running that same program have squatted more than you? Lots of them. Lots yeah. of them, but how many of those people have squatted more than you for a single? <laughs> Very few. None of them. <laughs> so yeah. the point is that your initial results within the first six months or a year are not predictive of how you're gonna do long-term. Yeah. So that's why I don't think it's a, that you could do like these lifetime goals. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I actually probably wouldn't, if I, you know, if I were in that situation, I probably wouldn't set goals in terms of number performance at all at the beginning phase. Because sure. I think about where I was and there was a guy who was front squatting 315 in my gym and I thought he was a god. I was like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do that, right? And I've since front squatted 315 for 10. I just had no concept of anything back then. And so numbers were like meaningless and I would probably rather set like process goals rather than outcome yes. goals, right? Process goals being, you know, I want to train say three times a week consistently not miss a session for the next nine months or something like that i would set that kind of a goal um, rather than a number because i think a number you end up doing stupid things when there are number goals right because if you're not on pace then you start doing stupid things to try to speed up the pace if you start to get greedy and you try to get too close to it and then maybe you have a setback then your like whole goal is ruined and then you're like lose a bunch of motivation and bad things happen from that standpoint um, so even now, I don't typically set hard numerical goals for myself because training has so many ups and downs, particularly at this stage of our training, training has so many ups and downs. Um, and PRs are few and far between. They take a long time to get through. So I don't actually set numerical. I'm like, it'd be cool to lift this much, but I don't know when I'm going to get there. I'm just going to keep training and you know show up four times a week and put in the work or whatever until I get there. So I focus way more on process goals than on outcome goals for myself. Whereas other people, they're like, I want to win nationals. I'm like, okay, well, yeah. I guess if that's realistic, then maybe you're going to win nationals. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm glad you brought up the process, being process oriented, particularly early on. Because yeah. again, you're just guessing with numbers anyway, yeah. like outcome related goals but if that's your thing okay yeah. Yeah. i just think something short term is probably a little bit more uh tangible than like i want to squat 700 yeah, yeah. it's like that <laughs> you're probably, probably bound to be disappointed yeah never gonna happen probably yeah. last question is this it yeah Ooh. have you ever been in a position where your willingness to denounce silly bs in medicine negatively affected relationships with colleagues or friends if so what was your experience like, and how did you deal with it? Uh, yes, this has happened often. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, so, so for me, I, it doesn't matter to me if I'm wrong. And what I mean by that is not that I don't get upset or like it doesn't like challenge my like, oh man, I want to prove that I'm right. But like, I don't hold a grudge about it. I just like, dang, I was wrong. I feel smarter at the, at the end of that. And then I get to tell you guys funny stories while I'm like writing stuff on the board. I'm like, yeah, and then I thought this, it turns out I was an idiot. Um, at the moment you feel like, oh, my whole being is being challenged. Um, but in general, I, I let go of that you know, relatively quickly after I accept that I was wrong. So I'm, I'm cool with, with, with feeling that. Uh, some other individuals are not cool with feeling that and want to protect that at all costs. And so if we disagree on something, it's not just that we disagree and like we can still be friends and get a beer together, but it's, I think that they're stupid. I think that they're a bad person and we can't ever hang out again. One of my, you know, I thought we were boys. 
I published that article, Shades Gray, and we're not friends anymore. Like we, <laughs> we, we, I had to send him a text message to be like, hey, like, we, we good, you know? And he's like, you know, there was some, some back and forth there and, and uh, yeah, I don't think we're gonna ever, I think that's irreparable. So it's unfortunate, you know, because I thought we were friends just because we have a difference of opinions on things doesn't mean that we can't be, you know, cordial and like talk about other stuff. So that's one thought, but it's happened a lot. I think with respect to denouncing silly BS, like our main thing is like, we don't want individuals to cause harm in our community. So we're more apt to speak out against people we feel like are doing harm. Um, I also think that now, particularly our, our, we've kind of pivoted instead of like just arguing with people, we'd rather just put out our own information and say, here's what we think. If you're willing to accept it, you're willing to you know, look at this critically, like cool, good. If you want us to just argue with somebody on, on their own terms, like probably not gonna engage in that too often um, unless you know, I've had a few too many drinks or like super bored. So I think like we've kind of graduated in a way like instead of putting out, you know, trying to extinguish somebody else's flame, like we'll just build our, build our own light and, and let people come to us. Yeah, that's pretty much my, uh, where, where I'm at at this point in terms of putting out information, trying to support it as best I can. And then if people are wanting to buy into that, that's cool. And if not, that's cool too. But um, we get tagged all the time in stuff that people try to drag us into arguments and 100% of the time I ignore those uh, tags. Just, you can't drag me into this stuff anymore. Um, get DMs from people trying to argue about stuff, ignore that, and it's just not worth it to me. So there's some degree of like self-preservation that has to happen because we're in this like public space now that I never really asked for, but here we are. <laughs> so hold on. Kinda, what? Hold, hold on, what? let's go back to like 2015. You're about yeah. to graduate. Yeah. So let's say that we were having a standard bro sesh mm -hmm. in my garage. Yeah. All right. And I was like, look, dude, like five years from now, we're going to be on tour, prestige worldwide, <laughs> bridging the gap between modern medicine and strength conditioning and communicating this as public fi uh, figures in the community. You, you cool with that or nah? Well, if I wasn't ever cool with that, I don't think we'd be No, there. you'd be psyched. You'd be yeah. like, wait, really? Yeah. yeah. And, and I'd be like, and get this. You're not going to work full time in a hospital. You'd be like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think being in a public, being in, the, in this kind of public space, uh, it comes with a bunch of challenges with it. And you can let it kind of wear you down in some capacities, or you can develop some coping mechanisms. And so um, there's certainly colleagues that I've come to disagree with on things, and that's led to some of us going in our separate directions necessarily, but uh, um, yeah, I, I have developed, I think, some skills of, of emotionally detaching from some of those things and not letting it wear me down uh, too bad because it's, it's not worth it. Um, so I think that I agree. We try to put out this material, put out a positive message, get people empowered, self-efficacious, uh, taking care of themselves and training, and then, um, you know, Haters gonna hate. Haters gonna hate. Players <laughs> gonna play. All right, look, I'm adding one question. Okay. Because we already talked about it, so we know the answer. Okay. So we were asked yesterday by Russell if we had to ask a physician like five questions or we had like five criteria to pick a primary care doctor, what would those five things be? Because we get asked some uh, variation of this question all the time, like, what makes good primary care doctor? 
And that's how everyone talks in my mind. So I'm sorry. I know that none of you sound like that, but in my mind, like that's what it sounds like. That's why I have a hearing problem. Okay, so I'm gonna do this from memory. You correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, so it's effectively the familiarity with the following five things. So you have to be familiar with the obesity guidelines from the American Academy of Endocrinology, 2016. You have to be familiar with the low back pain series in the Lancet. Good. 2018. 2018. <laughs> so funny. You have to use the uh, uh, USPSTF uh, guidelines. Screen for... screening guidelines. Yeah. All right. What else were the other two? I forgot the other two. You haven't said the physical activity guidelines oh, yeah. yet. You have to be uh, familiar with the physical activity guidelines for Americans. 2018. 2018, because they're updated. Yeah. Okay. What was the fifth one? Do we forget? What was the fifth one? I know. <laughs> it was like a wild card. Hmm. Maybe you have to be really good at uh, this whole behavior change deal. Yeah, that, that was like my, my take on yeah. this, you know? Yeah. So, so the idea is Wrapping that, up the behavior change and motivational interviewing stuff all in one, like, criterion. Yeah, you just have to have access to, like, uh, at least be able to refer people to, to, to different uh, places if you don't have time to do this in your clinic. Um, the whole thing, you know, is that you're familiar with what we consider to be the, oh, it'd be the, it was the high blood pressure uh, stuff, because you're thinking of the top five causes. Risk factors for mortality? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the, the, the top five risk factors for mortality, we would accept, uh, expect the primary care doc to be able to take care of or at least make some sort of headway in. And so again, that's addressing obesity, addressing being sedentary, addressing high blood pressure, addressing... High blood sugar. Yeah, high and blood sugar. And smoking. And smoking, yes. And then also having this, oh, by the way, I can, I can work with you on pain too. It doesn't mean that the other skills that they le are learned in residency or that are learned in medical training aren't useful. It's just like, I don't necessarily care if my, low, if my primary care doctor can diagnose this particular autoimmune disease or, you know, Treat, treat some other condition when this, there might be a specialist for that. I'd rather have more primary care doctors who know these things than, you know, are able to excise a lipoma or something <laughs> in sure. the office. Sure, yeah. So, yeah, that's it for our first seminar for 2020. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Thank you. Baby problems, you gon' regret every day So I let her know, gotta